and welcome to The Eclectic Humanist, Episode 5. Today, I think I'd like to follow up on something I alluded to last episode, where I was discussing Canada's genocide against our First Nations. I mentioned that in 1927, the Indian Act of 1876 was amended to prevent First Nations from retaining legal counsel for the purpose of pursuing land claims against the federal government. And I said that this came about as a result of a particular sovereignty claim. So, this episode, we're going to talk about that sovereignty claim. Basically, I'm going to tell you a story. This is the story of when the Six Nations Haudenosaunee Nation, near Brantford, Ontario, applied for membership in the League of Nations. The background to this story and the way it plays out will, I think, in microcosm, sum up a lot about how First Nations have been dealt with historically by Canada. Now, as for who the Haudenosaunee are, they're colloquially known in English and French as the Iroquois, and historically the center of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy had been in upstate New York. Originally the Confederacy, whose constitution, the Great Law of Peace, may well be older than Magna Carta, consisted of five nations, the Onondaga, the Mohawk, the Seneca, the Oneida, and the Cayuga. Around 1714, the Tuscarora also joined, thus six nations. Now, I'll be discussing their constitution, the Great Law of Peace, at length in a future episode. For now, we just need to know who these folks are and where they're located. Given where the historical center of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy is, you might well be asking, what does this have to do with Canada? And the answer is this. During the Revolutionary War, unfortunately, the Confederacy was not able to present a unified front. Most of the nations went in with the colonists, but some, under Mohawk war chief Tyendanage and his sister, Konwatsiriyani, and I apologize for my bad pronunciation, went in with the British. Now, Tyendanage's English name was Joseph Brandt. He is actually the person after whom the southern Ontario city of Brantford is named. His sister's English name was Molly, and she was the widow. She had been married to the British Superintendent of Indian Affairs, Sir William Johnson. In any case, as I said, a substantial contingent of Haudenosaunee under these two went in with the British. Now, when the British lost, this left them in a bit of a tight spot. And the crown was not ungrateful. As I said in the last episode, as much as the British crown was never truly a friend to First Nations, Confederation did not do them any favors. They tended to fare better under the British than under the Canadians. In any case, with the Revolutionary War being lost from their point of view, the Haudenosaunee who had fought with the British had to leave town quick. So they did. They went to southern Ontario, and were given a substantial piece of land by the Crown, where they set up their own independent First Nation. And when I say independent, I mean independent. This land was never ceded by treaty to either British or Canadian government. This was a, a grant of land from the Crown to be held as a sovereign nation. Why this is important is that the Six Nations Confederacy near Brantford has or had a different legal status than any of the other First Nations. The 1876 Indian Act set out 
laws and procedures as to how First Nations were to be treated and how they were to run their internal affairs, having entered into a treaty with the government of Canada. The Six Nations First Nation never did that. What this means specifically is that up until the time that we're talking about, there were no elected chiefs, there were no band councils. The traditional authority structure of the Haudenosaunee, that is the great law of peace, was their functioning constitution. It had the force of law within the bounds of their nation. Now, just to underline the, uh, the sovereignty question, the historical sovereignty question, the Haudenosaunee, as a sovereign nation, had engaged in diplomatic relations with a number of European powers. As early as 1600, they had an agreement with the Netherlands. They had also dealt with France and British and the British colonies and subsequently the United States. So this is a nation accustomed to conducting its own affairs on its own terms. For a quick summary of what happens in what would become Canada during the 19th century, you can find this in episode four. Regarding the land grant that would be and remains the Six Nations First Nation, over the course of the century or so, century plus, following the grant, white settlers in Ontario chipped away at the land slowly without proper authority, such that the original land grant no longer exists. It's a fraction of its former size. In addition to this chipping away by private citizens, to which both federal and provincial governments tended to turn a blind eye, by the early 20th century, it came out that the government of Canada, and there is some question that the government of Britain was complicit in this, had mismanaged a substantial sum of money that was owned by the First Nation at Brantford to the sum of some $160,000, which a hundred years ago was quite a lot of cash. And it's understandable how this could come about. The Brantford First Nation is surrounded by Canada, and if it wanted to deal in financial matters, it had to deal with Canadian banks. In any case, the grievance that stands behind the story I'm telling today is that mismanaging of that $160,000 by the Canadian government, and also the fact that as recently as 1909, the Confederacy had received sovereignty guarantees from the government of Canada, despite the fact that their land was still slowly being chipped away. That is, as far as they were concerned, Canada had robbed them of their money, was allowing their land to be robbed, and was also increasingly interfering in their internal affairs, trying to apply the standards of the 1876 Indian Act, where it really had no legal standing in this case. Now, if we want to get into more specifics, we need to return to our friend from last episode, Duncan Campbell Scott, Deputy Superintendent of Indian Affairs. Scott, as mentioned last episode, was opposed to any form of First Nations land sovereignty or self-government, and he introduced a program called Forced Enfranchisement. And what Forced Enfranchisement means is that, basically with the stroke of a pen, without their consent or consultation, the Haudenosaunee were relabeled Canadians. They didn't want to be, and many still don't. 
Many Haudenosaunee at the Grand, at the Grand River First Nation continue not to vote because they do not see Canada as their country, but rather as a hostile foreign power. I concur with them on this. So, as a response to this really underhanded move by Scott, the Confederacy Council filed suit with the Supreme Court of Canada, claiming that the Indian Affairs policies had violated their national sovereignty, which it had. This is their first attempt at redress from the Canadian government. In response to their filing suit, Duncan Campbell Scott arranges an order in council that declares the Haudenosaunee subjects of Canada, effectively sidelining any discussion of sovereignty and also undermining their ability to file suit. So, first, with a stroke of a pen, he'd made them Canadians, and when they tried to take advantage of the rights of Canadian citizenship, with, a, with another stroke of a pen, he made them subjects, that is, less than citizens. The Haudenosaunee Nation has tried to negotiate in good faith with the government of Canada, and the government of Canada has shown bad faith in return, which is what anyone who understands the history would expect. The next step, the second attempt at redress, is a perfectly sensible one. Canada is a member of the British Empire. It is a dominion of the British Empire. If the government of Canada won't deal with the Haudenosaunee First Nation, perhaps the government of Britain will. After all, diplomatic relations do exist and have existed for a long time between the Haudenosaunee and the British. So, accordingly, the Council sought a formal audience with the British government. The difficulty, though, is that they would have been traveling under Canadian passports. And when Duncan Campbell Scott found out what they were planning, he had their passports cancelled. And here again, and I say again because this has come up in this episode and in the previous episode, if you have a legitimate case, you don't try to prevent somebody else from presenting their case. You don't try to silence somebody unless you're pretty sure they're right. So in Scott's attempts here to prevent the Haudenosaunee from even getting a hearing, he's tacitly acknowledging that there is some legitimacy to their claim. In any case, no Canadian passports for them. This looks like a victory for Duncan Campbell Scott, except that, and this I love, the Haudenosaunee Council simply decided to issue passports under their own authority. They were, after all, a sovereign nation with diplomatic ties to a number of other sovereign nations. They had never ceded their sovereignty to Canada. And, in fact, they ended up traveling to Britain under their own passports. Unfortunately, when they got there, really hoping to talk directly to the king, George V, he was out of town. And the reason they wanted to talk directly to the king is that, is that the 1763 agreement and also their agreement under which they held, under which they hold uh, their land on the Grand River near Brantford, are with the crown directly. In any case, George was out of town, so the next person down the hierarchy whom it was appropriate for them to meet with was the Secretary of State for the Colonies, Winston Churchill. Churchill's a problematic historical figure, and I may actually get into him a little a little later. Um, I'm not going to touch upon him too much in this episode. He doesn't play a major role. At the time, this is post-World War I, Britain was adopting a policy of letting the Dominions handle their own internal affairs. So when the Haudenosaunee embassy comes seeking an audience first with the king and then with him, Churchill bounces their request 
back to the Dominion, that is back to the government of Canada, seeing it as an internal Canadian affair, it lands on the desk of Duncan Campbell Scott, who kills it. So they have just wasted their time going to talk to the British government, because the British government had effectively washed their hands of them. So, you can't talk to Canada, because Duncan Campbell Scott won't let you. So you try to speak to Britain, and it turns out that Duncan Campbell Scott still won't let you. But in any case, that was their second attempt at redress. First with the Dominion, then with the Empire itself. So their third attempt is to take it one level higher, and to appeal directly to the League of Nations, which of course was established after the First World War. Now in order to appeal to the League of Nations, to which Canada had just been granted a seat in 1922, they needed to be members of the League of Nations. So they applied for membership as a sovereign nation. Not only did they apply, but they were supported by the Netherlands, with whom, as I've said, they had diplomatic relations since 1600. With a sponsor to stand by them, their application is able to move forward. On the other hand, Canada formally opposes their entry and drafts a counter-argument overseen by Duncan Campbell Scott. This counter-argument, which of course they were entitled to respond to, is never forwarded to the Confederacy Council. That is, Scott oversees the drafting of the counter-argument and then withholds it from the Haudenosaunee so they can't respond to it before the League. But the matter's not finished with yet. Before we get into how it concludes, though, I think it's worth pausing and talking about definitions. In 1923, there was no internationally agreed definition of a state. That wouldn't happen until 1933 and the Montevideo Convention, which was signed by 16 North and South American states and in 1936 ratified by the League. Notably, Canada did not sign. The criteria for statehood, according to the Montevideo Convention, are as follows. 1. A permanent population. 2. A defined territory. 3. A government. 4. Capacity to enter into relations with other states. Now, the interesting thing here is that although, of course, in 1923, the convention was still 10 years in the future, the Haudenosaunee on the Grand River actually met all four criteria. They had a permanent population. Their boundaries were legally defined, although under threat. They had a government whose history was actually older than any of the North American colonizer governments. And they had a history of diplomatic relations with European and North American colonizer states going back to 1600. On the flip side, Canada did not meet these criteria. Sure, we had a permanent population, we had a defined territory, and we had a government, but as of 1922, Canada had never entered into a treaty on its own authority. Canada didn't sign the Treaty of Versailles. Canada's treaty negotiations had always been handled up to that point through the British government. According to the Montevideo Standards, when Canada was granted a seat on the League of Nations, or in the League of Nations, in 1922, it didn't meet what would become the criteria for statehood, but... But when they applied in 1923, the Haudenosaunee from Grand River did. So, all right, let's get back to the application. 
We know the Haudenosaunee have the backing of the Netherlands. We know that Canada is playing dirty again. So what happens next is basically power politics. The British pressure the Netherlands to drop their support, and the Netherlands do. And before we get too critical of the Netherlands, we do need to remember World War I has just finished. Britain had supported the Netherlands when they'd been invaded by Germany. British troops had been among those who liberated the Netherlands from German occupation. And the British Empire was still the most powerful force in the world. In any case, the Netherlands drops its support of the application. But representatives of other nations, specifically Estonia, Ireland, Panama, and Persia, offer their support. And I find it very interesting that all four of these nations are nations that are themselves facing colonial occupation of some kind or another. Estonia is under pressure from the Russians. Ireland has just gotten a form of independence from Britain and had been the object of Britain's colonial aspirations for centuries. Panama is well within the American sphere of influence and is increasingly being treated as such. And Persia, of course, is also strongly under pressure from the Western powers, largely because of oil. So now with four nations backing them, it looks like there's actually some hope. Except that there is a motion to adjourn the question until the next year. The motion is carried and the final decision is put off until 1924. In the following year, Britain applies pressure to Estonia, Ireland, Panama, and Persia, and they all drop their support. And that effectively is the end of the Haudenosaunee's third and final attempt at redress to the wrongs that they had received at the hands of the Canadian and British governments. But that's not the end of the story. Following that episode, a number of things happened. One, Duncan Campbell Scott managed to successfully have the Six Nations, now called a reserve, redefined as being subject to the Indian Act. What this means is that the Confederacy Council, which had a history of hundreds of years, is removed from authority. Scott, or the Canadian government, can't stop the council from sitting, but because their finances have to be handled through Canadian banks, what he can do is deprive them of all finances, and in fact he has their finances seized. Elections for a banned council, as per the 1876 Indian Act, are imposed. Only 26 people voted. By comparison, the Confederacy Council has 30 members. Now, this council still sits. It has no money and thus no power, but it still sits. But it no longer is a functioning government. The functioning government of the Six Nations First Nation is now the Band Council and has been since the mid-20s. So, by the time of the signing of the Montevideo Convention in 1933, the Six Nations First Nation no longer meets the criteria of statehood because they no longer have a functioning independent government because Canada seized the funding for their government 
and imposed a legal status on them that it had no legal right to do. Canada, on the other hand, by 1933, has entered into treaties on its own authority and therefore does meet the Montevideo criteria. As I've said as well, down to this day, many of the Six Nations Haudenosaunee maintain that they are not Canadian. Their land, as I said, is unceded. The only reason their Confederacy Council can't function is that it was deprived of funds. The Band Council is still seen by many as a Canadian imposition. So what we have here is the the systematic deprivation of statehood, largely under the engineering of one single person. Now, something like that probably would have happened even if Duncan Campbell Scott hadn't been on the scene. But the fact that he was involved in every step of this systematic deprivation of statehood and was long regarded as an important, even a great Canadian, continues to trouble me. I studied his poetry during my master's degree, taking courses in Canadian literature. Scott is one of four Canadian poets labeled the Confederation Poets, the other three being Sir Charles G.D. Roberts, Bliss Carman, and Archibald Lampman. As a person who studied Canadian literature in grad school, I have to admit I'm not a fan of the Confederation Poets. They're horribly derivative. What they basically try to do, as far as I can see, is impose an old-world voice impose what really I can only see is hackneyed English-style poetry to Canadian themes as they understood them. And one of the themes that they tended to address, and the reason I'm bringing this up now, is the so-called figure of the native in uppercase. That is, there's a certain literary construction of the First Nations people of Canada that is bound up with that first generation of post-Confederation poets that I think is worth looking at in the context of the conversation we're having right now about the treatment of actual First Nations people because, of course, one of the key poets informing that image was also one of the key bureaucrats in the federal government's outright genocidal treatment of the actual people about whom many of them wrote. So for Act 2 of this little three-act podcast, I think I'd like to look at one of Duncan Campbell Scott's poems. For Act 3, we'll tie things up by looking at a wonderful short prose piece by Beth Brandt, a descendant of the family of Joseph Brandt and Molly Brandt, the Mohawk leaders who brought their faction of the Haudenosaunee Confederation, mostly Mohawk, to the Six Nations First Nation, or in other words, I think, the ideal person to have the last voice in this particular episode. And the Brandt piece we'll be looking at is called Mohawk Trail. To begin, though, the poem I want to look at from Duncan Campbell Scott is called The Onondaga Madonna. I chose this poem for a number of reasons, one of which is that the Onondaga are one of the original five nations of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, and therefore part of the specific culture group that we've been talking about so far, and part of the specific confederacy whose sovereignty and statehood Duncan Campbell Scott had a direct hand in undermining. The poem, originally published in 1898, is not long, and it goes like this. She stands, full-throated and with careless pose, this woman of a weird and waning race, 
the tragic savage lurking in her face where all her pagan passion burns and glows. Her blood is mingled with her ancient foes and thrills with war and wildness in her veins. Her rebel lips are dabbled with the strains of feuds and forays and her father's woes, and closer in her shawl about her breast, the latest promise of her nation's doom. Paler than she, her baby clings and lies, the primal warrior gleaming from his eyes. He sulks, and burdened with his infant gloom, he draws his heavy brows and will not rest. Now, there's lots that we could say about this poem, and... As much of what I do for a living involves teaching literature, perhaps I run the risk of saying a little too much. I'll try, though, to keep it as focused as I can, and as relevant as I can to the topic of this podcast and and the previous podcast. One thing that might stand out here, and you may have noticed as you were listening, was the construction of racial otherness. The nameless Onondaga woman is described as weird, savage, wild, primal. These are words that bump up against the sense that many colonizing Europeans had that theirs was a civilizing mission. Weird, savage, wild, primal, these are uncivil words. So there's a clear binary being posited here between the civil poet, and the uncivil subject of the poem. Her race is also, and he brings up the notion of race, he's working with the politics of race, is described as waning. Waning. He sees, the poet sees, the poem sees, the poem presents the people whom the woman represents as on the way down. That is, as a group that has had its day, and is now ebbing, is now waning. And that waning is recognized as tragic. There's a sense of human sympathy here, which I take as a double-edged sympathy. That is, I don't buy it, but the words tell us that it's tragic. There is also a sense of threat. Line three gives us the tragic savage lurking in her face. So the wildness, the savagery, is, is lurking. It's, it's not overt, it's covert, it's partially hidden and dangerous. Similarly, the description of the baby is as a primal warrior. And that primal is a fun word, isn't it? It's related to primitive as well. So there's again this opposition between the civil or civilized European and the primal or primitive, quote, savage, unquote, of the so-called new world. So just as a quick summary of words pertaining to descriptions of race, the basic binary here is civil or civilized on the one hand, and uncivil or uncivilized on the other hand. And the civil or civilized is on the way up, and the uncivil or uncivilized is on the way down. But there's more to it than that, of course. A little less obvious is the construction of First Nations heritage and teleology as mediated by the masculine. Now, that may sound a little literary and pretentious, and again, that's an occupational hazard, so let me say what I mean. 
Her so-called rebel lips, and I'll get back to those, are dabbled with the stains of feuds and forays and her father's woes. That is, she's portrayed as the inheritor of her father's woes. Her father is the source of her inheritance. That is, the father is the source of her heritage, as presented in the poem. Similarly, the child is a boy. So, She's a woman caught between a father and a son, a masculine past and a masculine future. So the heritage, the transmission of heritage going both back and forward is patrilineal. This is precisely backwards. The Onondaga, the Haudenosaunee, and most Canadian and North American First Nations were matrilinear in their descent. That is, the woman, the mother, the grandmother is the carrier of the culture and has the authority to decide who's in and who's out. And within the Haudenosaunee Confederation, so specific to the Onondaga, they were also matrilocal. That is, when a man and a woman married, the man became part of the woman's family, not vice versa. So what Scott's doing here with his masculine heritage, her inheriting her father's woes, and then, then um, her future being embodied by her son, not a daughter, is he's imposing a Western patriarchal structure on what is a First Nations matriarchal history. That is, he's inscribing a Western narrative onto First Nations flesh and blood, which is a nice way of summing up what the colonizers did, what the Canadian government did, what the missionaries did. Which brings us around to the construction of authority, of licit and illicit authority. She's described as having pagan passion and rebel lips. These two phrases capture both religious and political authority pretty well. Within a Christian context, and Scott's writing from within a Christian context, pagan is bad. Pagans are people who are yet to be converted. Similarly, from a political point of view, a rebel is someone who rejects accepted or legitimate authority, at least from the point of view of the establishment, and Scott was an establishment man. So we have pagan rebellion, for the record, two of my favorite words, and passion passion. Let's pause on passion. All of these things are working together. And again, they're working together in ways that fit into the binary structure of a really, really deliberately imposed narrative. Pagan is opposed to Christian. Rebel is opposed to lawful. Passion, passion is opposed to rationality. And this is the way that the figure of the woman in the poem is constructed. This is the way her, this is the way her people are constructed. The West, Western authority is rooted in Christianity on the one hand and rational politics on the other, at least if you ask a Western person. Now, having, having read and, and taught the great law of peace, the Haudenosaunee constitution, I can vouch for its rationality. It's a document that I actually admire and respect a great deal. But again, that's for another episode. So in each of these binaries, pagan, Christian, rebel, lawful, passion, reason, these categories are not merely 
opposed on a level playing field. They're hierarchical. Within each case, the second term, the one associated with Western culture, being given the privileged place, and the first category, associated with First Nations, being given the subordinate place. But so far I haven't mentioned the most obvious part of the poem, and that's the title. Onondaga Madonna. Madonna. What is a Madonna? Well, Madonna, my lady, refers to Mary, and one of the most common artistic images in the history of Christian Europe is the Madonna and Child, Mary holding the baby Jesus. And what Scott gives us here is an image of a Madonna and Child. This language is loaded. The poem gives us a portrait of a woman holding a baby. She's labeled as a Madonna of her people, Onondaga Madonna, and therefore is having the dominant Christian narrative imposed on her and her people. There is nothing more dominant, nothing more historically important in terms of Western narratives in the last 2,000 years than the one that Scott is evoking right here. And the way he's invoking it makes my skin crawl. And as I was saying that, all of a sudden I realized what he is doing or another facet of what he's doing with having this woman effectively sandwiched between two men. Now the Madonna and child image is a central image in the salvation narrative. So what he's giving us is a version of a salvation narrative, a version of the Christian salvation narrative Again, imposed on First Nations. So a reinterpreting of their narrative trajectory from their own narrative to the narrative that the Europeans brought with them and with which the Europeans destroyed First Nations culture everywhere they fucking went. And I mean everywhere, not just in North America, not just in South America. In Australia, in New Zealand, in Africa, in Oceania, everywhere. So let's think about what this Onondaga Madonna is and how she relates to Mary. Mary, of course, is the human woman who bears the child of God. Or who bears God as a child. Either, both, I don't care. Now, and this is something that I have found my Christian students don't enjoy hearing. Yahweh never asked Mary's consent. Now, there are all kinds of apologetics. Oh, she was happy to be his good servant and all of that. Blah, blah, blah. Yahweh didn't ask Mary's consent. In Luke's gospel, Gabriel comes down in the form of a dove and says, Hey, Mary, lucky you, you're going to bear God's child. Now, in Matthew's Gospel, Gabriel comes down and gives the good news to her husband, Joseph, rather than to Mary. It's just one of the many contradictions in that little collection of stories that I will be addressing at some point as well. In any case, First Nations, sure as hell, didn't ask us to come here and fucking save them. But if Mary is this embodiment of humanity, carrying the child of God or the God-child, then how is the child that the Onondaga woman is holding 
related to that particular motif. And as I said, this one makes my skin crawl. His skin is whiter than hers. He bears, as Scott says, the doom of her people. Now, doom here also means judgment, by the way. That's part of the etymology of the word. But insofar as God is the thing added to Mary's humanity, whiteness is the thing added to the Onondaga woman's humanity in a way that is structurally identical. That is, there is a thematic link, a structural link here between whiteness and divinity. What the poem implicitly says is that white people come bearing God and that they're doing so for the purposes of salvation. But this is a twisted salvation, isn't it? In Christian mythology, we're being saved from original sin, that is, the sin of Adam. And here's where I think the nameless woman, the Madonna, being sandwiched between these two male figures, her father's woes and her doom-bearing son, her father's woes, I think, function here as something like the curse of Adam, something like original sin. That is, her nativeness, her non-whiteness, is a mark of alienation from her potential, from what she could and therefore should be, not from my point of view, but from Scott's. And the salvation embodied by this child of a white father is the end of her culture. It's the absorption of her culture into that of the invading people. They are, as Scott says, waning. And they are, as Scott says, doomed. But here, I don't want to just stick to the poem. I want to remind you of Scott's words when Dr. Peter Bryce told him of the high fatality rates in the First Nations residential schools, and Duncan Campbell Scott replied that that was the final solution of our Indian problem. And I want to remind you of what else Scott had to say in his position as Deputy Superintendent of Indian Affairs. I want to get rid of the Indian problem. Our objective is to continue until there is not a single Indian in Canada that has not been absorbed into the body politic, and there is no Indian question and no Indian department. That is, their salvation, from his point of view, is to no longer exist as a people to no longer exist as First Nations, but simply to be absorbed into what he calls the body politic, white culture. So they're to be saved by being eliminated. So in other words, the narrative is of this woman at this point of transition between her people's past, which thematically is linked to the sin of Adam, fallen humanity, and their future which is thematically linked to salvation, but salvation through non-existence. Salvation through the loss of their identity, through the loss of what makes them who they are. And this is the vision that Scott has as a poet and as a bureaucrat. It's the vision he writes about in what I have to admit is a technically proficient sonnet, but it's also the vision that he puts into practice when he undermines every single attempt that the Haudenosaunee make, that First Nations people make, to assert their own identity, to assert their own political independence, to assert sovereignty over themselves, over their future. So in this sense, Duncan Campbell Scott is the ultimate embodiment 
of what the West did and often still does to First Nations people. As a final note, before we move on to Beth Brandt's Mohawk Trail, I did mention that this is a sonnet. And I mentioned grudgingly that it's even a pretty competent sonnet. It's really not a bad poem, technically speaking. It's a horrible poem, I think, politically. I, I think it's downright evil. But it's technically proficient. But the structure itself, the architecture of the poem, the sonnet, is a definitively European structure. So the structure itself, the lines of the poem, the, ryth the rhythms and the rhyme schemes, also serve to imprison this Onondaga Madonna, this nameless woman, trapped in the middle of a narrative not her own, within a structure also not her own. So it's a complete inscription of European religion, European politics, European poetics over a people who are in the process of being systematically not only silenced, but eliminated. And I'll remind you here that it was during the time that Scott was serving in the Indian Affairs Department that the population of First Nations people in Canada reached its lowest point. But of course, there were survivors, there are survivors, and ultimately, those survivors will speak. So accordingly, I'd like to bring us back to the Haudenosaunee, to the Mohawk with whom we began. Beth Brandt, her Mohawk name was Dagon Wedonti, was a descendant of the family of Mohawk war chief Tyandanagea, known in English as Joseph Brandt, and his sister, Konwatsi also known as Molly. I mentioned them earlier in the podcast. Now, Beth Brandt, who died fairly recently in 2015, her family was from the Tiendenaga Mohawk Territory on the Bay of Quint on the north shore of Lake Ontario, near Belleville, for anyone who's familiar with the area. This territory was established in 1793 under the same agreement as the Six Nations First Nation by Brantford. That is, it was for Mohawk who had fought with the British and then had to leave what was then the United States. The piece I'll be reading is the title piece for Brandt's first published book, Mohawk Trail, published in 1985 by the Women's Press in Ontario. It's a short recounting of her family history, beginning with her great-grandmother Eliza and ending with her. It tells the story of her grandparents moving to Detroit. It tells of her parents' generation, which includes nine children. And in the end, it circles back to a conversation with her grandmother talking about her great-grandmother again. So unlike the narrative that's imposed by the laws and acts of parliament and the poetry of the Confederation poets, Brandt's work remains within the context of the traditional values, the traditional social structures of her own society, of her own people. In that sense, knowingly set against a colonizer society, this public articulation of cultural solidarity is both a personal and a political act. As for the details of the story, I'll just let those speak for themselves, actually. I don't want to impose my interpretation on it. So I'll just wrap up the podcast with a reading of Mohawk Trail by Beth Brandt. There's a small body of water in Canada called the Bay of Quint. Look for three pine trees gnarled and entwined together. Woodland Indians, they call the people who live there. This is a reserve of Mohawks, the people of the Flint. On this reserve lived a woman of the Turtle Clan. Her name was Eliza, and she had many children. 
Her daughters bore flower names, Pansy, Daisy, Ivy, and Margaret Rose. Margaret grew up, married Joseph of the Wolf Clan. They had a son. He was Joseph, too. Eight children later, they moved to Detroit, America. More opportunities for Margaret's children. Grandpa Joseph took a mail-order course in drafting. He thought Detroit would educate his turtle children. It did. Joseph, the son, met a white woman. Her name is Hazel. Together, they made me. All of Margaret's children married white. So, the children of Margaret's children are different. Half-blood. Half-breed, Uncle Doug used to tease. But he smiled as he said it. Uncle was a musician and played jazz. They called him Red. Every Christmas Eve, Uncle phoned us kids and pretended he was Santa. He asked, were you good little Indians or bad little Indians? We, of course, would tell tales of our goodness to our mothers and grandfather. Uncle signed off with a ho-ho-ho and a shake of his turtle rattle. Uncle died from alcohol. He was buried in a shiny black suit, his rattle in his hands, and a beaded turtle around his neck. Some of my aunts went to college. Grandma baked pies and bread for Grandpa to sell in the neighborhood. It helped to pay for the precious education. All of my aunts had skills, had jobs. Shirley became a dietitian and cooked meals for kids in school. She was the first Indian in the state of Michigan to get that degree. She was very proud of what she had done for the people. Laura was a secretary. She received a plaque one year from her boss proclaiming her speed at typing. Someone had painted a picture of an Indian in a headdress typing furiously. Laura was supposed to laugh, but she didn't. She quit instead. Hazel could do anything. She worked as a cook, as a clerk in a five and ten cent store. She made jewelry out of shells and stones and sold them door to door. Hazel was the first divorcee in our family. It was thrilling to be the niece of a woman so bold. Elsie was a sickly girl. She didn't go to school and worked in a grocery store, minded women's children for extra money. She caught the streetcar in winter, bundled in Grandma's coat and wearing bits of warmth from her sister's wardrobes. When she died, it wasn't from consumption or influenza. She died from eight children and cancer of the womb and breast. Colleen became a civil servant, serving the public, selling stamps over the counter. After marrying white men, my aunts retired from their jobs. They became secret artists, putting up huge amounts of quilts, needlework, and beadwork in the fruit cellars. Sometimes, when husbands and children slept, the ants slipped into the cellars and gazed at their work, smoothing an imaginary wrinkle from a quilt, running the embroidery silks through their roughened fingers, threading the beads on a small loom, working the red, blue, and yellow stones. By day, the dutiful wife. By night, sewing and beating their souls into beauty that will be left behind after death, telling stories of who these women were. My dad worked in a factory, making cars he never drove. Mama encouraged Dad to go to school. Grandma prayed he would go to school. Between the two forces, Daddy decided to make cars in the morning and go to college at night. Mama took care of children for money. Daddy went to school for years. He eventually became a quiet teacher. He loved his work. His ambition, his dream, was to teach on a reservation. There were so many debts from school, we wore hand-me-downs for most of our young lives. Daddy had one suit to teach in. When he wore his beaded necklace, some of the students laughed. His retirement came earlier than expected. The white boys in his Indian history class beat him up as they chanted, Injun Joe, Injun Joe. My mama stopped taking care of children. Now she takes care of daddy and passes on the family lore to me. When I was a little girl, grandpa taught me Mohawk. He thought I was smart. I thought he was magic. He had a special room that was filled with blueprints. 
When and if he had a job, he'd get out the exotic paper, and I sat very still watching him work. As he worked, he told me stories. His room smelled of ink, tobacco, and sometimes forbidden whiskey. Those times were good when I was a little girl. When Grandpa died, I forgot the language, but in my dreams I remember Raksotha Raukara, my grandfather's story. Margaret had braids that wrapped around her head. It was my delight to unbraid them every night. I would move the brush from the top of her head down through the abundance of silver that was her hair. Once I brought her face up to my face. She smelled like smoke and woods. Her eyes were smoke also, secret fires banked down. I asked her to tell me about the reserve. She told me her baby had died there, my father's twin. She told me about Eliza. Eliza had dreams of her family flying in the air, becoming seeds that sprouted on new ground. The earth is a turtle where new roots bear fruit. Eliza gave me life, Grandma said. Grandmother, you have given me my life. Late at night, pulling the quilt up to cover me, she whispered, Don't forget who you are. Don't ever leave your family. They are what matters. Okay. I hope you enjoyed that. I find it particularly lovely myself. And while there are a few reasons why I decided to include it in the podcast today, I'll just keep this simple for now. I began by talking to you about the Haudenosaunee attempt to gain a seat on the League of Nations in the 1920s and the lengths to which the Canadian government, particularly Duncan Campbell Scott, but not just Duncan Campbell Scott, went to prevent that from happening and to undermine every attempt at sovereignty on both an international and an internal level that First Nations undertook. I told this particular story because the details are unusual. It's the only instance I know of of a Canadian First Nation applying for a seat on the League of Nations, and the only instance I know of of a Canadian First Nation issuing passports under its own authority. But these details notwithstanding, the story is typical. And it deals with an ongoing act of construction of First Nations, a construction of First Nations identity, based not on actual human beings, but on abstract ideas, on political ideas, imposed by the colonizer or settler governments and the colonizer or settler societies. That is, the actions taken against the Mohawk were about power, about politics, about ideologies, about religion, uh, about economics, but they weren't about individual people. And the genocide carried out against First Nations, it was about groups, in-groups and out-groups, ideologies, races, abstractions. And when we moved on to Duncan Campbell Scott's poem, we're again dealing with abstractions, we're not dealing with real people. We're dealing with the cultural arm of a genocidal endeavor whose agenda was to impose cultural whiteness, Western politics, Western religion, on the peoples of Canada and elsewhere in the so-called New World. It was about anything but individuals, anything but human beings as such. And in Scott's lifetime, that attempt came closer than it ever had and ever will to fruition. The populations of First Nations in both Canada and the United States reached their lowest numbers ever. But survival is not about groups. Survival is not about abstractions. Survival is about individual people, 
individual lives that don't end. And when Beth Brandt speaks, when, when Dagon Wedonti speaks, she speaks, of course, as the inheritor of the tradition of the Haudenosaunee who, who came to what would become Canada in 1793. So she speaks as a member of the culture group that I began this podcast talking about. But more importantly, she speaks as a person, as a person with family, as a person with a life, as a person embedded in a particular society at a particular time, facing particular challenges. And when she speaks of her family members, she speaks of them not as abstractions. She speaks not as the Onondaga Madonna. She speaks as herself. She speaks of her family as themselves, as human beings. And in the history of the colonial encounter with First Nations, the one thing that the colonizing powers have been most hesitant to see First Nations people as is human beings. Because you can't extinguish a human being. If you recognize a human being as such, you recognize a kinship, unless you're a psychopath or unless you're a sociopath. It's that rhetorical, political, religious, ideological depersonalization, dehumanization that the colonizing forces have been so good at that allows for or that enables the extermination, the genocide of whole cultures. Because once something has been abstracted, once something becomes merely an idea against which one is contending, well then it's not that hard to eliminate it. Because you can't see its face, you can't hear its voice. Survival, though, as I said, is about individual lives and their individual context. It always has been, and it always will be. And on that note, I think it's time for me to stop talking. So, thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact me, leave comments or suggestions, you can find me at eclectic.humanist at gmail.com if email's your thing. Or you can check out the Eclectic Humanist Facebook page. In any case, I hope you've enjoyed today's podcast, and I'll look forward to talking to you again soon. In the meantime, be kind to each other.